On this episode of It's a Funny Your Life podcast, I will be joined by a massive Liverpool fan, Hillsborough survivor, and member of Spirit of Shankly, Peter Carney. Hello. Hello, Peter, how are you? Hi, Joe. Hi, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Thank you very much for joining. You're welcome, lad. Well done for having a go. Oh, brilliant, yeah. Um, I'm gonna get just gonna get straight into it. I'm gonna get straight into it. So really easy to find out about you. Um, so my first question I'm gonna ask you is, where did you grow up? I grew up in Kirby, West Vale, Kirby, uh, Sydney Powell originally, and then uh, Melbourne Rose. And I left there first. Left there when I was uh, just coming up to eighteen. Oh yeah, what was that? Was it good? Was it good then? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, we lived on the end of the road, especially the later years. We lived on the the end of the road with the fields, yards from our house and an adventure playgrounds right on the end of the road. So yeah, it was really good. I, and I remember it more and more with fond memories. You know, we had the railway, so uh, only took us two minutes to get out into the countryside and over to the canal and things like that. You know. Oh, that must have been boss. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So uh, what schools did you go to? In the juniors, I went to Holy Angels and St. Michael's and in St. Kevin's in the seniors. Oh, yeah. So what was that like? Did you enjoy it there? Um, No, not really. St. Kevin's, uh, I didn't take to at all. I I just didn't take to school. Um, The last, uh, well, the last couple of years, I was just, um, I just wasn't... uh, very disciplined in going to class and stuff like that. No, I didn't. I didn't enjoy school at all. Uh, although I was bright, I was uh, after the first year of senior school. I was in the top set. Um, for the second year, these put classes according to ability, and the top two classes were the you know top ability, and I was in the the second of the top two classes. So, you know, I must have been fairly intelligent. I just didn't have the, the discipline and the um, focus to um, get on with schoolwork and listen to teachers and do as I was told. So I spent half my time bunking out. <laughs> that sometimes holds bright people back if they don't concentrate in school and all that. It just holds them back from actually maybe having a possibly really good future. Yeah, it was just something that, you know, I... I'm... You know, um, I think you know. I often wonder whether um, if if it had been probably got a bit more support from the school in, in managing my behaviour and what have you, um, and helped me to focus on what what, what I should have been focusing on. Um, but you know, it's no big deal. You know, I've managed quite ably without um, without having any qualifications. Yes. Um, so when you were in school, did you play footy? Yeah, yeah, especially junior school. Um, yeah, I played for the B team at All the Angels um, and I played for the A team Michaels in the third year. So must have been a, a decent player. But um, when I got to the senior school, you know, there's no chance. Nine out of the 11 were Kirby boys players. Um, it was an all-boys school. Um, you're picking between you know, 250 kids as opposed to, you know, 40 kids. So um, my interest uh, turned to cross-country running. So I'd done cross-country running for a couple of years and 
and I enjoyed that for a while, the first uh, couple of years of senior school. But no, I, I just wasn't good enough, you know. Um, as I say, most of the team were Kirby, Kirby boys players, you know, um, from the primary school uh, age. And then later on, um, when, you know, you get to under 14, the third year, I'd, I'd given up on playing for um, the school team a long time before that. Um, yeah, but some cross-country runner, and, and I was decent, like, you know what I mean? A decent uh, cross-country runner. Yeah, but I, I, again, I didn't have a, a, the focus and discipline to to follow it through. And I, I started smoking at about 13 or 14 as well, so that didn't help. It's not a good uh, habit to take up if you do. Yeah, did you, do, did you enjoy any other sports apart from cross-country and footy? Only the fifteen hundred, eight hundred, and fifteen hundred at uh, in the summer, you know. Um, yeah, I, I I remember getting a a, a goal. Yeah, I used to the three A. It was called the Amateur Athletic Association. Used to run a a scheme whereby they graded you on your sport and ability in different events. So you had to do four or five different events, you know. Um, and I got a gold badge for that. So you know. And I was decent enough, you know. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's a source of great pride. Um, and I remember breaking five minutes for the uh, 14, was it five minutes for the, um, for the um, what's his name, 1,500 metres. Um, yeah, so I used to enjoy that, you know. It was, uh... Did you have to say loads for it, like? Did you have to what, sorry? Did you have to say loads for cross-country, Donovan? Say loads. Did you have to train a lot? Train, yeah. Well, it was just one day a week the training, and then to be a race on the the Saturday. You know, the good thing about it was that you you know you got to go out to uh, different places. Um, there used to be like a regional competition, so I remember going up to like Clitheroe, um, and to go and run in the snow, um, and you know to go out to a place like that it was like a day trip. You know, once you every couple of weeks, you know, and locally there used to be like a league of schools. So you might go to Gattaca or I, I remember going to Gattaca and it had a great big hill next to it. Uh, I often wonder what big hill next to it. Um, and, you know, so it was a good, it was good in that, you know, you got a, you know, you got a day out on a Saturday, you know, Saturday morning. Um yeah, so I enjoyed that, yeah. Yeah, so uh, outside the school, did you play for any footy teams? Not really, no. There wasn't. Uh, the only one that I can remember as a kid was playing in year seven, as they call it now, first year of the seniors. A lad in our class, Tommy McFadden, he played for a team in South Dean. And, um, and I played for them a couple of times. It must have been towards the end of the season. They played out of the Liberal Club in South Dean. And I think they were called Morston, something or other. Um, played in like a West Ham kit. And I only actually played for them a couple of times. But good enough, they um, they invited me to go with them on their end of the season um, day out to, to Rill, which uh, lives uh, well in my memory. Going on a, I remember going on a um, fairground drive that was basically a barrel, and uh, they spun the barrel rounds really fast. You stuck to the wall, and uh, the floor dropped 
and then you were stuck to the wall as this barrel was spinning round. But no, and and, and again, I, I don't think I, you know, I didn't feel like I, I was uh, I was good enough, you know, uh, to to play um, Sunday league. Though I, you know, I love playing football. We played football all the time. You know, every time we walked out the house, we'd be playing knock one or three and in and things like that. But let's say there was a field right next to our house. And uh, we were at the end of the street. There was a gable end, and we used to play uh, knock one uh, across the road from people's gateways, you know. So, no, not organised football, really. I just wasn't good enough. Yeah. Uh, so, when did you go and start watching Liverpool? The first time I went on my own, I was six years of age. I, um, I got uh, to Bob 24 pennies. Um, 10 pence off uh, my mum's mate Margaret Murphy um, I was playing football on the school field at the end of our road and um, watched her getting off the bus and um, I went over and introduced myself because you usually got a bag of sweets off Margaret and she gave me two bob and then another bus come along I thought I'm going to match and um, and that's what I done. I went to match. Yeah, six. I was six and a half. Uh, Chelsea in the FA Cup, nineteen sixty-six. Um, yeah, so that was the first time I went uh, on my own. And 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 I went, you know, uh, as as a teenager, quite regularly. I was just writing a piece for somebody else has asked me to write about uh, my first away matches, and uh, <laughs> and I got myself into knots because. Uh, the first away match I ever went to was um, South Liverpool versus Kirby Town in the FA Cup fourth qualifying round. And I, I wasn't even in senior school then, I was only in, in the juniors. And the first uh, Liverpool away match I ever went to was uh, friendly against Southport in January 1970. Liverpool's FA Cup tie against Coventry had been cancelled because of snow and so Liverpool arranged a friendly with Southport and there was a bus went from Kirby Station straight to Southport so I went there yeah so that that was my first uh, I, I went with my dad you know as a as a kid as a, an infant and you know after I'd been on my own when I was still in the juniors um, my dad used to collect uh, glasses in the Fantail pub and when they had last orders, it was three o'clock, they'd have last orders and then we'd jump the bus and go to match um, and hopefully get in at half time or certainly get in the grounds at three quarters time, you know. So, uh, yeah, that was my first um, recollection to go in the match. Yeah, so when you were, when you were at field to go and watch Liverpool, did you used to stand and stand up in the cock? Because you used to be standing up back then, did you? Or were you in the boys' pen, like we did? I started off in the boys' pen, yeah. I started off in the boys' pen. Um, the first time I went, it cost a shilling to get in. And, um, yeah, and uh, but as I say, when I went with my dad, um, we tend to go for half-time or three-quarters time, you know. Um but the early days, it would be the boys' pen, yeah. And then when we started getting in the seniors, I think what we used to do was um, was pay full price to go into the, the cop because when you got on the boys' pen, you spent half the out of bunk into the cop, you know. Um, well, when I got that little bit older, 14-ish, um, we'd just pay straight into then and be able to get a spec early on. Um, and watch the game from wherever you want instead of spending all your time dodging stewards and 
working out how you were going to get over the fence or jump down into the toilets, you know. Yeah. I didn't realise how long it, how long it was open, the boys' pen. It didn't actually close till 1978. But uh, I know that we stopped going in there about 1973, 74. Yeah, so is that like... Because I know a lot of people have said when you were in the boys' pen, like you just said there, they always start to jump out because it was like railings all around the court where they used to try and jump over the railings. That's it, yeah. It was, it was like, you know, it was just a fence, you know, um, uh, uh, like you say, railings, but railings 10 foot high, you know, so you'd either try. One of the tricks was to get over in the corner where the If you could get up onto the back wall, you could climb along the back wall and, you know, bypass the wire. But um, the favourite trick I always remember was the steps into once you went through the turnstile, there was a big uh, row of steps, and to the right of the steps was the cop toilets, where block where the block B entrance is now, and in between the um, the stairs and the wall for the actual cop, there was a bit of a gap, so you you could climb up on the wall get onto the wall of the cop and then drop down into into the toilets. But it, it was an almighty drop, you know, it must have been, I think it was about 12 or 15 feet to drop because um, you, your feet would be stinging, you know. Um, and, of course, you'd have to uh, make sure you didn't drop on top of fellas who were in the toilets, you know. So, yeah, that was, that was my uh, favourite one. And sometimes the bars were bent. You know, they, they, you know, I don't know how people would bend the bars, but sometimes you'd be able to, you know, literally bunk in between the bars. <laughs> the, the fans actually used to bend the bars so people could actually get through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there'd the, the be fellas who'd be feeding the kids, you know, the kids would go in the car and one side of the fence and the, the dads would be the other side of the fence and they'd be giving them crisps or, or whatever, you know. Um yeah, so, yeah, there was often uh, planned escapes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's legendary, that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, do you remember your your, your first match family left? Like, what was the result and all that? Yeah, yeah, they played Chelsea in the uh, the FA Cup, third round of the FA Cup. Liverpool won the FA Cup on my sixth birthday for the first time, the 1st of May, 1965. And the first game that they defended that was against Chelsea in the third round of the Cup the following January, 66. And Bob off me, it cost me five pence to get there. Two Bobbies, 24 pennies. And it cost me five pennies to get to Everton Valley. It cost me a shilling to get in the ground. That's 12 pennies. That's 17 pennies gone. I had seven pence left and I knew I needed five pence to get the bus back home. And so I went to cafe at half time um, and the only thing on the menu, I had a cake. And so that's what I've done. I got an Eccles cake. But Eccles cakes then used to come out of the oven. You know, this is January, dead cold. I'm in my shorts. I haven't played, been playing football um, so we got an Eccles cake and uh, Liverpool got beat 2-1 they were winning 1-0 uh, Roger Hunt scored for Liverpool and then uh, Chelsea equalised before half time and then scored the winner 
uh, in the second half. So Liverpool has won the cup for the first time in 70 years. And the first game they played, they got knocked out. Oh, yeah, that must have been. I mean, obviously, from going to win it and then, and then losing it, they still Yeah, yeah. Mad. Well, I was a kid, you know, six years of age. I was just made up to go with the match, you know. Um, you know, of course, it's disappointing to get beat. When I got home, um, I had a rosette off my dad's mate, George. Dine. He used to sell rosettes at the match and he'd given me a rosette at the match. And my mother said, to him, where'd you get the rosette from? I said, I've just seen Georgie O'Brien. He, he gave me the rosette. He said, Georgie O'Brien, straight after the match. I said, well, he gave me a rosette. I didn't tell her he gave me an outside the Albert Public. But um, anyway, my mum pulled a face at me and I had me tea and, you know, playing around in the house and what have you. And uh, 10 o'clock, match of the day was a new thing then. I think it was still in black and white. Um, and um, the opening sequence was the 1923 FA Cup final where, when Bolton plays West Ham, I think, and 150 ends up. And the police put a horse on the pitch to get everyone off the pitch. And while this is on the telly, I said, see that white horse? And they killed me today. <laughs> my mother belted me down here. I don't know where you've been. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So That's Liverpool terrible. got battered by Chelsea and I got battered by my mother. How <laughs> things have changed dramatically since. Yeah. I mean, kids can't go to the match on their own till they're 16 now, can they? No, that's I mean, yeah, that's the thing. No, it's just it's 16, it's, and then you obviously you were your first time on your own, you were six, so I yeah. know it's 16. It's just how much how things have changed now and how much safer it is. No, oh, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, in the summer we used to go out to play, and and you know, we'd go until you know, till tea time, you know, we'd go out first thing in the morning, and, you know, go over the canal or or whatever, and you'd be lit, you'd be out literally all day, you know, and only come home at tea. Um, well, that doesn't go on now. It's just a different time, isn't it? You know, different. Mm. So, yeah, it's crazy now. It's absolutely mad. Um, so, who were your favourite players growing up then? Thompson. Peter Thompson was my... Uh, I was left... I'm left-footed. Uh, like Peter Thompson, I was a winger as well. Um, so, Peter Thompson was my... Uh, my hero, I used to say... Um, when Peter Thompson played, uh, when Peter Thompson plays for Liverpool, he's me, and when I played football, I was Peter Thompson. You know, that's that, that's the way it was. You know, I mean, nowadays, I suppose kids would go out and play in the, the park or whatever, and you know, pretend that the Mo Salah or Andy Robertson or whoever. You know, it was Peter Thompson for me. Um, I had a brief flirtation with uh, Alan Evans because um, again, the likeness was. Um, one thing because Alan Evans had blonde hair, you know, fringe, and so did I. Um, and then Emily News after that. Um, yeah. and I, again, Emily News plays on the left of midfield, so you know, I played on the left. So yeah, Emily News was a great uh, hero of mine. But the the biggest hero, football hero I I ever had was was Peter Thompson. Peter Thompson, yeah, I know I've heard. Oh, that's surprisingly of me. Dad's a massive red, but 
I've never heard of really mention. I've never heard of mention Peter Thompson before, and now he's going Emlyn Hughes, Tommy Smith. Yeah, yeah, well, your dad's probably a bit younger than me. Um, you know, I'm sixty-two. I was born in fifty-nine. So, so that sounds like your dad. Me, yeah, he's yeah, probably in seven years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sixty one, you say? Sixty one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Peter Thompson, maybe he was just that little bit young to to get that team, you know. But I mean that that was the you know, that was the first great Liverpool side uh, of Shankly's, you know. Um and um Peter Thompson was still there I think when I got into the seniors. I think I don't think he left until like 1970, 71. Um, and then the, 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 the second great side, um, Keegan was the big hero, but I always liked Toshach. Yeah, John Toshach. John Toshach, yeah. Yeah, because um, yeah, he, he was known from Cardiff and the fact that Liverpool had bought him from Cardiff. But I, I always felt that Keegan um, took a lot more credit for the way the team was than what he deserved, you know, uh, um, you know, a big admiration for for Tosha. But my next big hero really was uh, um, Alec Lindsay. Alec Lindsay was a left back, um, and again, you know, it's playing on the left, isn't it? You know, it's that idea. But Emily News was followed on from Peter Thompson, really, and then um, I loved Alec Lindsay. Um, mm. And then uh, following on from that was uh, was Dalglish, and still is. I still say Dalglish is the greatest player Liverpool have ever had, and the greatest man Liverpool have ever had. Yeah, because he stuck he stuck by Liverpool for thick and thin, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He just you know the the game and that like he come to Liverpool, and uh, you know he was so much part of the team. It wasn't just about he was so key to the the team, and then. Was as well similarly because Emily News could, you know, defend and, and, and could attack. So, you know, it's always about the team, you know. Um, well, Dan Gleesh fitted right into, you know, team um, and, uh, and and replaced uh, Keegan and brought more to the team than what Keegan did for me. Um, so, yeah, he, he was great. And then, of course, he went on to be our manager and what have you. So, you know, yeah, he's just himself to be, you know, such a great man. Yeah, well, from from all the players that you've mentioned there, my dad has told me about like to- Tommy Smith, Kenny Dalglish, Ian Rush. Yeah, Tommy Smith. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Tommy Smith was quite because uh, he was a, he was a fullback. You know, I mean, he's, he was hard as nails, as they say. You know, um, but uh, uh, yeah, all them. Um, yeah, it, it, it's uh, it's a strange thing to say, but um, I was quite honoured to be asked to make a flag for Peter Thompson's funeral, uh, uh, cover his coffin, uh, and Tommy Smith as well. I've done the same for him. I actually put Tommy Smith's flag in the ground when it was locked down. Um, I got to meet his daughter, you know, um and um yeah I, 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 I put the flag in the ground so it was in the ground during uh, during lockdown you know I couldn't find the Peter Thompson one the, 
Peter Thompson one went to his uh, daughter and I couldn't get contact with her. That one. But you know, to, to think like here, I am 62 years of age. And uh, to think back of the kind of players. I mean, Tommy Schmidt was, you know, Liverpool Football Club, you know, a kid from Scotty Rose who grew up in a single parent family, you know, and played all them games for Liverpool, captained them so many times, scored the winner in the European Cup final, you know, um, and to, you know, to make a flag that covers his coffin is, is a, you know, tremendous honour. It must have been an honour, especially with with the Peter Thompson man as well. You you were saying that he was your favourite player in the hero, so it must have been an honor. Yeah. It must have been amazing for you to be asked to do that. Uh, I actually I asked you know offered the club and and the, the club uh, put it to the family and the family were you know uh, you know receptive to the idea should I use it you know so uh, yeah that was a great honour and. It, um, I took the the flag to the match the next match after he died, and um, and then it went back to the family. So when I tried to get it to display during lockdown, we couldn't find the the door to show it around. But yeah, I mean, tremendous honour to think that you know, um, is the you know my great hero. I think, um, and then to to do that was a real honour and a privilege. Yeah. Must have been as well. Um, so can can you uh, can you tell us about some famous Liverpool games that you attended? Well, my favourite at the moment is the Barcelona one. Um, oh, yeah. I, I I honestly believe that that's the greatest night I've ever spent in in Anfield. Um, yeah, it, it was just you know what I, I just you know it's like uh, reminds me of. You know, just wanted them to put a good showing up because Barcelona went worth a three 0 winner over there, um, and I knew Liverpool were, were much better than credit for, and I just wanted them to, you know, show a bit of themselves. They had something about themselves for it, um, and and get a goal, and, and good enough, they got a goal within six minutes, didn't they? You know, and then once you score, you know, you're away. Then well, you know. It, it was just, just what a night, what a, you know, and and the funny thing was, I, I never, you know, what saying about uh, they've only got a score one, then Liverpool need five, you know, um, and we've got to score one first, you know, because um, I'm always hopeful if Liverpool got beat, you know, five nil in the first, like ten nil in the first, like I'd still be hopeful they could win eleven nil, you know what I mean? You have to. You know, it, don't you? Otherwise, you've got no chance. Um, and and then when he went four uh, 0 up, I, you know, I couldn't believe how easy it was. Um, you know, it was that five minutes after half time, wasn't it? The on the pitch that won it. But just the, the crowd and everything about the place was just really magical. It was like nothing else that had ever been before. He, you know, before that, the nights at Anfield, he, you know, it was the Chelsea nights. I was in. Um, that night. Um, I remember the Auxerre game. The Auxerre game was a great game. Um, Liverpool were written off uh, after being beaten away. 
Um, yeah, and of course Istanbul. I mean, Istanbul was, you know, really was momentous. You know, it was, you know, it, it was like a pilgrimage. It was just something else. Um, and uh, you know, that was a, you know, game. You know, and and it's not just the game. It's about everything else around it. You know, um, yeah. So. Yeah, but currently my favourite uh, game is the Barcelona game. Yeah, I mean, I can even say I was um, I was honoured and pleasure to be at that game as well, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah, well, it is. You know, it is a privilege, isn't it? You know, and especially uh, the way things, and what have you. You know, um, you know, the few and far between and harder to get hold of. And you know, if you. You're there at the game. There's nothing like being at the game. Don't care what anyone says. You, you know, uh, and telly doesn't come anywhere near, and you know, VAR and what have you like. You know, um, you know the tele. You know, I call it television of the game. You know, they're taking the joy of being at the match. Uh, away because they only want people to go, you know, a few times. We don't really, you know, we're just extras in a film set, aren't we? Um, but there's nothing like going the match, you know. That's my thing. That's what I love doing. That's what, um, that's what I do. And I'm, I'm lucky, and as you say, honoured and privileged to, to be able to do it as, as many times as I do. So that comes from, you know, from doing it and wanting to do it and making the effort to do it, you know. Yeah, I've been. Oh yeah, that it, it is really just an both an effort and passion for the club. Um, because I obviously went to the Barcelona one. I went to the um, went to the Dortmund four three game where Lovren scored that last minute header. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I wasn't there that night. I wasn't in there that night. I had a, a problem with me tickets, and uh, I ended up sitting in the sand and with Sarah Williams and daughter. Um, she'd walked out at 2-0. They were 2-0 up, weren't they, after 20 minutes? 2-0 and, up to uh, 9 minutes. They had 9 minutes, was it, yeah. Uh, or Liverpool were two goals behind by them, were they? Um, yeah. And she'd walked out. And um, I walked into the sand, and then there's uh, Sarah Williams sitting on a stool at the bar, crying. She couldn't cope with it, because um, <laughs> it was all too much. It was very close to the anniversary. Yeah, uh, the hills were on the I think it was of, of April like um anyway, I, I ended up watching the second half in the Sandham with her and that was uh, yeah, that was brilliant. Uh, anyone who was in there. Um I think I've got a case with Dortmund because um I wasn't in the two thousand and one final and against Alavez either. Um exams in school that week. And we'd been in Australia the previous autumn for six weeks, so I couldn't take him out of school for a football match and miss the exams, you know, after missing six weeks before Christmas. So I never seen the Alavez game in Dortmund either. Yeah, so maybe it's just Dortmund as a case to me. Oh, yeah. Dortmund just uh, mugging you off so many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't seem to have much luck with them. Yeah, and they didn't um, didn't he beat Liverpool in the '66 uh, Cup Winners Cup final as well? Uh, I think mm-hmm. they, they. Well, I know they did. Um, I always remember my mum uh, knitting a big rosette, um, making a big rosette while um, not come to nothing. 
Yeah, so um, Dortmund don't bring me great memories, to be honest, except the fact that we beat them. Yeah, oh, it's amazing. I mean, that yeah, that last Dortmund four three game was amazing. I mean, well, it was th- it was three one. I think it went to seventy minutes. It was three one down, and there was just yeah. no open. Even when even when Mamadou Sakho scored, it was three three. We were going out weren't we on away goals, and then right, yeah. up, tried to cock my leg over the yeah. and get on the pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just give me a second, Joe. Okay, Peter. Hello? Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it's astonishing, isn't it? You know, the, you know, the, the fact that you're three ones on. I mean, you know, you you play the game over 180 minutes or whatever, you, and uh, and you're down to 15 minutes and three goals down to beat them, you know, and and he's it, didn't he? You know, so I mean, you just never give up hope. I remember in Istanbul coming out of the grounds uh, at half time. We were on the front row with the side stands at the ends where um, the lines were. And um, as I come out, uh, a group of lads by the walkway and they were singing, uh, we're going to win 4-3, 4-3, we're going to win 4-3. And, and I looked at them and thought, you know what, it's a right Man City song now. Because Man City had played Tottenham in the cup earlier on in the year, Kevin Keegan was the manager and Joey Barton had been sent off at half time in between. Um, but I mean, I never said that out loud and, you know, because uh, you never give up hope to you. Um, and, and I remember going down to the toilets as well and, um, and the lad said, oh, it's fucking awful, isn't it? I said, yeah, it's a long way to, uh, to the, it's a long way to to um, see your dreams being shattered, but I, I, I still didn't say you know uh, we're beaten, you know, um, and I, I, you know like I said before, you just about the uh, Barcelona game, you know, you just want them to show willing to make a bit of effort and show some pride in the game, that, you know, that they'll have a go, and um, yeah, and uh, well, he did, didn't he? You know, six minutes that changed the the game between Gerard between the three goals, wasn't it? Yeah, it's mad. Um, Anfield, but that—that's I think Anfield's probably the only stadium that can lift the players up to do to do such a good comeback like that Barcelona Dortmund. Just it's just the um, just the Anfield roar and the Anfield passion that can do it for them. And I think that's what Liverpool will struggle with this season. Yeah, Liverpool have definitely struggles without the players. They're an emotional team. They get carried on the wave of emotion that gets behind them. I mean, I, I, you know, said it many times that I don't go, to, I don't go to watch a football match. I go to take part, you know, because we we used to say uh, the cop could suck a ball over the line or blow one off the line. Well, the Chelsea game was proof of that, wasn't it? In in two thousand and five, you know, with the ghost goal, you know, uh, but yeah, you know that that that's uh, that's part and parcel of the the joy of going the match, you know, the the you know, you you're not just um you know going to like like going to cinema or going to watch a play. You're not just going as a spectator, you know, you're going as a participant. You've got a job to do. You need to your job is to get behind the players, support and believe, you know, um, you know, believe that they can do it and show your support for them to to help them do it, you know. 
and and you're quite right. I think Alfred Anfield, you know, has built up such a, um, a track record, and uh, the, the you know the, the, the reputation is recognised all over the place. That that you know we do get behind the team in a positive way, and uh, and help them to do the best that they can. Yeah, it's just amazing. Liverpool Football Club's just a passion for it. It's amazing. Yeah. It's always there. Um, so, um, so does any does any games really stand out as as your favourite, like of all time that you've ever, ever watched? Barcelona. Barcelona. Yeah. It, it, it was absolutely honest to God. I, 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 was, um, I was as cool and calm as I could be because everyone had written us off. Um, and I, I'd say I just wanted them to show willing and, and, and a bit of pride in the shirt and um, and a bit more of the, the ability we knew that they had, you know, and, the, you know, the way that the, way that the team were, you know, from the, the word go, they didn't go and go after, after scoring one, you know, and the way that the crowds were that night, you know, it was, uh, wasn't raucous, like, you know, screaming at them to get into them and stuff like that. They were, um, you know, it, it was proper supportive and, and what have you. You know, we could quite easily, you know, screamed and shouted, you know, to get into them and get back into the game. But, you know, they were more encouraging and more gentle with the support and, and, and what have you as the game went on. Then after half time, the whole lot just changed, didn't it? There's five minutes between the, the two uh, uh, Wijnaldum goals, you know, and then from there on in, you know, it was, uh, oh, it was just brilliant. Yeah, that, that, honestly, that is, um, that, that, that is, you know, it, it was just amazing. It was just like nothing else that had gone before. And, and it has to be, you know, it has to get better to, you know, it's the nature of the beast, isn't it? Um, you know, um, that's just, that, that's my favourite of all time now. That, that stands out for, for, um, all the games that I've been to. Istanbul was absolutely remarkable. You know, it was a three-day trip. I mean, just getting into that final was astonishing. You know, the laughing, the joke is, you know, Jimmy Traore's got a, um, a European Cup winner's medal. You know, they were all laughing at him at Burnley. There's actually a song about him uh, being at Burnley, you know, and, um, and you know, getting his legs caught up in himself when, uh, when he lost the goal, you know in the FA Cup and people screaming at Benitez as they leave in the pitch and you know that, that was remarkable what he's on there turning them into European champions you know but it, I, I my banner my Istanbul banner says destiny delivered and and that's what it was you know it's waited 20 years from when we went to Belgium for the game against uh, Juventus and, and we went there to to win the European Cup to keep, and it, you know it was twenty-one years later that we actually uh, uh, done that. You know, got our the European Cup of our own, and that's quite right for Liverpool Football Club because you know for twenty years Liverpool Football Club was the most outstanding club uh, in in your well, I say twenty years, you know, um. But certainly for ten years, and we're well worthy of you know of having a, Euro- a European Cup of our own because that's how how good we are. That's you know that's the club that we are. Yeah, it's just it's just I, I just I don't think I could imagine supporting another club 
No, you can't. Well, if your dad's a red, then then you can't. That's what you do. You you know you follow your dad. My son's the same. You know, we. I mean, he's been to places I've never heard of before following Liverpool. You know, uh, and I've been to a lot more games since since he left school. A lot more away games than I did as a kid. You know, so I, I've had the sort of second wins. You know, the same. I'm born against Shankly, and you know, um, because it. You know. Since he's been going the game as an adult, you know, that's given me a second win driving them up and down the country in the bus and, and what have you, you know, and it's given me a, a second life as a Liverpoolian. Yeah, it's just, just amazing, really. Um, yeah. I'm going to move on to um, something that I'm, I've mentioned in the introduction that you were, you were a Hillsborough survivor. Yeah, that's right. I still am, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll always be a Hillsborough survivor, yeah. Absolutely tragic. So during that cup run when the FA Cup, we played Carlisle, Millwall, Hull, and Brentford, leading up to the fateful day. Did you uh, did you attend any of the games during the run up? No, no I uh, I was playing at the time. The best football I ever played was um, around that time. I played for the Madness in in Kirby. We played in the Ormskirchen District League. We done the double the day that. Uh, Kenny Zaglish won the league in 1986, um, and I was just on, just about on the last of, uh, of playing football. Then, um, and I'd come back to Liverpool in '84. I lived down south uh, for three years, and uh, I'd come back and lived in Kirby. Uh, by that time, I was living um, in Walton Vale. Um, but no, I hadn't been to any games in, in the run up to it. No. Um, because I was playing on a Saturday. Oh, nice. Oh, well, yeah, well, not very nice, but don't manage it. So, on obviously April the 15th, 1985, we were drawn to play at Not against Nottingham Forest at Hillsborough in the semi final, um, which is known in our, in our famous club's history as probably the, the very worst day. Yeah. So, uh, what were your plans for the day to the build-up to the match? Well, the, the, my original plan was to drive myself. There was four of us going in, in my car. We had a Fiesta then, and uh, it changed in the morning because another lad wanted to go, and he had a bigger car. So, uh, uh, that's what we done. We went in his car, and um, and I sat in the back seat. Um, yeah, so uh, there was five of us went together. Uh, me, Kenny, Vinny... Uh, yeah, so that was um, we'd been the year before we had uh, uh, tickets in the North Stands before, um, and um, yeah, so you know, it wasn't new to go to Wills, but you know what I mean. And of course, we played the same team, and we were hopeful that word was that Hanson was going to play again, uh, Hanson was going to play for that thing, um. And he he was he wasn't far short of retiring, Anson. So, and I don't think he was doing much training at the time. And of course, he he did play. Um, the how fit he was, you know, I don't know. Yeah, so that's that's what what we done. We went over the um, via, via Stockport and Glossop. Yeah, no, yeah, that was how we come to be there. Yeah. Yeah, so I know I know it must be difficult for you to talk about, but can you tell us a bit about your experience and what happened? 
Yeah, well, my, my experience was that, um, it, you know, it was a beautiful day. The, the sun was really bright. I wasn't in uh, good shape, to be honest with you. I'd been away on a barge the week before, not the immediate on the 1st of April, and we were away for a week, and it rained and hailed and snowed and everything during the week. And the following week, I was off work um, with a bit of flu. So when we come to go to match, I, you know, I didn't have much energy and, and what have you. But it was a beautiful spring day. The sun was quite bright. And I always remember a, a fellow walking around with a, like an army kit bag selling sunglasses. And um, he was saying uh, a pound's a pair to keep out the glare. And uh, I thought that was quite funny, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it was a beautiful day. Um, the arrangements around the ground were a bit different. Everything was a free-for-all. All the roads were um, were blocked off the year before. We'd been at the Penistone Roads and uh, after walking around the ground the year before, and we got stopped at one end of the street um, to see that we had tickets for the, the other end. And then when we got down to the other the empty streets, we got stopped again. Um, and that's the way it was. It wasn't like that in '89. It was um, there didn't seem to be that many uh, police and what have you around. You know, it was a proper free for all. Um, and I ended up going in the grounds uh, quite late, about ten to three, five to three. Um, as soon as I went in, I met a lad. Just had a baby, and I spoke to him about that. To the stands, we went down the tunnel. And then, uh, then uh, when we were in the tunnel, we stumbled into the uh, onto the terrace um, and to the right of the terrace. And then, as I'm trying to correct myself, I was got on the terrace. And as I tried to correct myself, I could see that there was people or what have you, um, obviously in a in a terrible. And uh, just tried to get myself out the way of that, and I got myself over to the left. Um, and then stood there, uh, screamed at the coppers in front of the fence to um, let, open the gate and let people out onto the pitch and do something about, you know, the situation we were in. But uh, they never responded and what have you. I thought I'd got myself in front of a barrier, which would be a safe place to be. And... Um, Anyway, the lad next to me uh, was changing colour and I couldn't move my arms and legs. Um, and I stopped screaming for help because I thought I was wasting breath, you know. Um, I was feeling it on my chest. I thought I was rising out of the crowd and that I was head and shoulders above everyone around me. But as I kept looking around the ground just to keep my eyes going and I switched off from the noise and what have you in the pen and... I wasn't even, I remember watching Gary Parker on the pitch running up and down the straight line, but I wasn't really watching the match. I was trying to distract myself and keep me breathing going because I was being crushed, you know. And I thought I was, say, head and shoulders above everybody else around me. Um, and um, as I was looking round and looking at the clouds above the far end and what have you, and... Um, Next thing you know, I was uh, I was outside of the the pens and I was looking back into the pens at myself being crushed. Uh, I was going through a near death experience. I'd gone down like a tunnel, like a cotton wool tunnel, um, just floating, 
uh, down this tunnel or my vision was just floating down this tunnel. And uh, as I look back into the crowd, I was head and shoulders below everyone in the in the pens in the perfect circle of uh, supporters around me. Uh, I was lower than everyone around me. Um, and I said to myself, what about Tina? Tina and the baby. Um, and that was the last conscious thought I had. And then, I, I don't know for sure, but um, it all went black then. And the next thing I remembered was um, being thumped. I felt like I was getting banged on my chest. and um, But I was like face down. Uh, and I was, but I was being banged on my chest, and I, I think what was going on was that people were passing me back over their heads, back the way that I come out. Though I've got no proof of it, um, that's the way it felt. I couldn't feel my arms and legs, um, and then the next thing I remember was um, as if I was on my back, but my arms and legs were outstretched, um, and I could hear. Uh, sounds, echoing noise, and my vision was black. I could proper see black. Um, and I had this echoing noise and sound, noise around me. Um, but my arms were outstretched. And um, and I actually woke up back outside the, um, the on the concourse at the back of the grounds, the, 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 the tunnel, and... Uh, I was looking back towards the wall um, and there was policemen stood in front of bodies and there was a fellow with his um, T-shirt. He had a Wrangler jacket on his T-shirt pulled over his face. Um, and my first conscious thought was, I'm here, I'm here, meaning, you know, I'm here on this earth, you know. And then, um, my mate come out to the ground um, the same way, and and he spotted me and he shook me on my shoulder, um, and then put his head coming from behind, shook my shoulder, and, and then put his face in front of mine, and I could feel tears running down my face as he done it, and um, and I always remembered it for a long time as him seeing that I was crying, that I was okay, and he had me moved uh, over to the wall at the back of the grounds. And years later, he said to me, he said, you know the way that you describe what happened? He said, that, that's not the way I, I remember it. So uh, I said, well, how was it that you remember it? And he said, well, what happened was, he said, I put my hand on your shoulder. He said, and I looked at your face, and he said, don't fucking touch me, I'm fucking aching all over. I said, well, you know, that sounds about right for me, like, you know what I mean? So um, then he got me moved over to the back of the, um, the stands and then I got taken to hospital. Uh, I could feel my arms again then. I still couldn't feel my legs. Um, I could feel my arms again. And I remember old nans with a lad who was from Skem had a pink shirt on. And... Um, uh, yeah, and then we got taken to hospital, and I was in the hospital till about seven o'clock. They wanted me to stay in, um, but I didn't want to stay there. And um, Mick had the car, so the doctor said, "Well, look, you go and get the car, um, and we'll see how he is by the time we get back." We'll, you know, they know. I think they were checking my blood pressure and what have you. Um, they'd already X-rayed me and stuff like that. Um, 
And anyway, when Mick come back with the card, he's done the test on me again. I said, look, we're only letting him go because we know you're taking him home. You should put him straight in the car and drop him at his door. And, you know, you need to rest and all that. So, so that's what they've done. So then I phoned home, told Tina what had gone on. And um, I made me made me way home. And, um, yeah, we got in the car and um, the news was on, said there was 93 people dead. Um, and then we switched the radio off and... 93 and 39 just kept spinning in my head because 39 people had died at Aisle. And uh, that was my original thoughts about it. It was like divine intervention or something, you know what I mean? It wasn't like, you know, it was just, uh, just the way. But, yeah, that's that, that, that was my experience uh, of the day. And yeah. that, that must be that must have been absolutely traumatizing. I don't think I could have done that. I really don't think I could. That's traumatizing. But I think you know, I, I often uh well I, I think that someone something happens to people to everyone somewhere in their life where, you know, the, the being comes into question and um, you know, and it's fight or flight, isn't it? You know. Um and you know, you have to do your best to to deal with it, you know, and I, I, I just think that, you know, um, well, you know, there's no two ways about it. It's the worst day of my life. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I come out alive, you know, I, I struggled with the idea of whether I should be dead or, uh, you know, I could be dead or, you know, uh, if I hadn't done this, I would be dead, you know, um, and, you know, that whole thing about, um, you know, about being here and being so close to not being here has, has lived with me ever since. No, I don't. That's just, just mad. I mean, it's just, it's just that you're that's just that you're here for you. That must just feel like so just cherish something. It just be me amazing, just that you're still here. Although that faithful day, 90, 96 yeah. people were lovely not. Yeah, well, like, you know, lovely, I yeah, say. yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't like to use the word lucky because I fought for every breath that I took in the pens, you know. Yeah. And um, you know, um, you know, uh, the mental difficulties, the mental traumas that I've had to deal with, you know, since and especially immediately afterwards for a little while, a couple of years of really struggling with my own being, you know, and whether or not I should be on this earth or, you know, what have you. Um, you know, you, you know, I used to say, uh, lucky as sits on a dice. You know, um, I fought for every breath in them pens. It wasn't down to luck that, that I got on. It's because, you know, um, I fought for every breath and I was lucky if there was any luck. It was just that I was amongst, the, you know, a group of people who were, quite quick to help others when they, you know, when they've been through the worst trauma that they've ever been through in their life, you know, that's where the the luck bit comes into it. But even that, you know, I chose to be there. I chose to be amongst these these people. These are the people who, you know, who I've always wanted to be with, especially at a football match. And when it comes to the, you know, the worst of it, then, then you know, then people turns out to be the great people who I think they are. Yeah, just yeah, it's just it's just not it's not, it's just not nice to live with, really, is it? No, it's it's not. But then you know, like I say, you know, the, the the actual experience is not nice to live with, and a lot of what goes with it is not nice to live with it. 
but you know the um, the um, the counterbalance to that is the you know like I say you know the the way that you know those survivors who were able to do something for others immediately done that as soon as they were able to do that. Um, so for as difficult as that was, immediately there's a you know there's a positive to it, and that's what you try to hold. You know the you know the the, the the there is a better way, and you know and. You know, and that's the that's why I'm here, um, because then people done done them them things in that instance, and similarly, you know, since then anything to do with it or difficulties, you know, the way you get by is is, is with the help of family and friends. You're never on your own, you know, and you know if you you know ever you know think that you know you're not worthy of being on this earth or whatever, you know, you know you don't want to be on this earth, then you know. You have to hold on to the fact that and I hold on to the fact that you know you you never want thing on your own. You are always connected with others, um, and that's often the way and uh, your way out of difficulties is by um, you know getting support from others and you know asking for help or or, or whatever you know. Um, and, and and that's the way that, that I've always dealt with it. In the first instance, um, I had support from the social work team. Um, but uh, uh, I felt that, you know, I, I had to meet with other survivors to to normalise my experience, to see what other people went through and how they managed to, you know, get by with it and... and and swapping and sharing experiences and skills and stuff to get over it. That's uh, that's the way that, that that I dealt with. That's the way I still deal with it now. Yeah. Um, it's through the help and support of others. Yeah, just just the, the support of people. Just it just means a lot to other people. And you know, immediately, you know, you've got family and friends around you. You know, um, you know. So uh, you know that's and and, and you know you, you have a um, a responsibility to them to try and be the best you can for them and what have you and so you know you put it to the back of your mind whatever it is that's worrying you or you know distract yourself from the difficulties that you're dealing with in order to be better for those people around you and that like you know what I mean but that's a weird way of you know. Um, intruding on your life and um, you know um, on your thinking and stuff like that uh, in a, a force of its own you know um, that you know it, it sort of uh, makes things difficult and, and what have you you know yeah. you know I don't know how to explain that but you know, you, you feel like, you know, you're not worthy of being on this earth or, you know, um, you know, stuff like that. You know, just bad thoughts about yourself and, um, you know, or bad thoughts about the world that we live in and how shit it is and, and what have you. But, you know, you have to find a way forward, don't you? Find a way of being better and getting better and doing better, you know, and, and managing yeah, I mean, how long did it take for you to like really recover from like mental thoughts from that from that day? 
immediately a couple of years, um, two or three years, I think. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, you know, it, it, it's all, like I say, it has a, it has a strange way of, um, of catching up with you. Not necessarily, the, you know, the actual experience of being in the pens, but, you know, um, things that are, you know, related to that and, um, I mean, at the, the beginning of this pandemic, is um, I really struggled with it myself because um, I was fearful of ending up in, in hospital with a you know a mask on and no friends and family around me and stuff like that, and um, and just worried about my own existence, and and it was very very similar to the way that I felt immediately after Hillsborough. And that went on for uh, for a couple of months, and it was very similar to the way that I felt immediately after Hillsborough, but it didn't have the physical pain uh, that I had from the crushing of being in the pens. I just had the um, the serious um, mental difficulties of you know worrying about my own uh, existence and what it would be like to you know to suffer from COVID and be stuck in a hospital surrounded by people in, in gowns and masks and stuff like that and not being able to get your breath and not having any family around you. And, and I worried for my mum. My mum's nearly 90. And I worried that it, it may happen to her. And all that, the only the, the first time I really thought about things like that was was after Hillsborough because, you know, my own existence was was brought into question, you know, really uh, as close to not being as I've ever been. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just that instant, like, scared, scared, like, well, what's going to happen? Like, what, 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 what will happen if I'm not here? Like, will I be here tomorrow? Will I be here? It's just, it's just that instant. Yeah, 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 it's just that, you know, uh, you know, not being here, it, it, it's what they call existential anxiety so you you're anxious about your own existence um in the first place whether or not you will be here or not um and then the next bit is about uh what it means to be here whether you're worthy of being here whether you you know um whether you want to be here you know um things like that so your mind is preoccupied with your own being um, rather than, you know, things you want to do or things you want to see or, you know, things like that. You know, it's um, it's a it's a it's a difficult thing to manage. Yeah, horrible, horrible. Yeah, yeah, but we get by. You know, you find ways, and you know, get over it and get on with it. Yeah, definitely. So that ninety six people died that day or thereafter. So the the treatment and the media coverage that the families and fans have had to endure over thirty years has been nothing short of an abs- absolute joke and absolute disgrace. So can you ta- can you give me some of your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are that it was uh, you know um, the, the the media coverage in the very first instance. You know, it's so widespread. You can find plenty of examples where people are telling how it was and how it is. Um, but then um, it all turns on the South Yorkshire police efforts to, um, you know, discredit Liverpool supporters and stuff like that in the week following because they knew quite well. And and all they've done since is is try and cover up their own responsibilities. Um, 
and the responsibilities of those that, that you know created the disaster um and and you know no matter what they they've constantly and consistently um so um uh you know to deny you know they, they they've sought to you know shift the blame for it um of time until the second lot of inquests because they you know they would never accept that you know well they would never carry out the the actions they need to carry out of charging people for you know for what happens on the day um 2001 i wrote an article called justice my ass and in that i said the illsborough has taught me the difference between murder and manslaughter um, the murder is that you quite deliberately go out to kill someone. Manslaughter is that you kill someone uh, by your actions, but it's not deliberate. I said, but the uh, if there was going to be charges brought for Hillsborough, then charges would be state slaughter, and there'd be that many people in the dock. The dock would be the size of the penalty box or the director's box, because there'd be that many people in there. And it's just that sheer scale of it and the level of responsibility and the positions that the people who should have been in, in the criminal uh, court um, for it when it happens, the... the um, that's why they wouldn't do it because you know to have um, you know the um, what I thought was the responsible was the likes of the secretary of the FA and the, um, Duchenfield and the chief constable of South Yorkshire Police, um, you know, standing in the criminal dock, charged with the responsibility for um, for killing people at Hills, but then you know, then it's not going to happen. It's funny because there's a thing. And this is where it comes back uh, regularly. If you there's just been a big fire in a factory in Bangladesh, and um, the people who own the factory uh, have been arrested and charged with murder, um, you know, within days of it happening. Um, well, that's what should have happened over Hills, but the same thing um, should have happened to the people who had uh, management responsibilities for the the Grenfell Tower as well. Anybody with the responsibility for that should have been arrested straight away for for criminal charges um, while they investigate what's going on. Um, but the whole point about the way that they carried on was to avoid, you know, bringing the, the charges that they should have brought against them people. Um, and then to make matters worse, they actually um, blame the people who, who who did damage and who did killed um, for it. And the funny thing is, something came to mind to me the other day about Duchenfield, uh, uh, because they still don't know where Duchenfield was in the couple of hours before the um, the disaster unfolded. Um, and uh, and the the uh, thought crossed my mind: Do you know what Duchenfield did? Um, and then, you know, between the hours of this, you know, it's a double-edged thing. Do you know what he did, you know, in terms of his responsibility for the disaster? And do you know what he did in a couple of hours before the disaster unfolded? He went missing for a couple of hours up to about half past two. Um, and some people claim that he was in one of the um, the boardrooms drinking. Um, and it's funny, isn't it, that that's the exact uh, accusation they laid against Liverpool supporters. That they were all drinking. Absolutely um, graceful. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. So, but good enough. It all turns around with the uh, the new inquest. But of course, by then, you know the. Um, I mean, the, the the good thing about that was, you know, that they uncovered so much of the the evidence that should have been made public in the first place. Um, but good enough, they did, and they got the verdict of uh, unlawful killing, and. Uh, and unlawfully, unfairly blamed on the, the uh, survivors and supporters. Um, yeah, but unfortunately, they never, you know, turned that into a proper criminal um, trial for, for those that were responsible. Yeah, it's, it's obviously, honestly, just how the sun and other people go about blaming Liverpool fans, not wrong, just wants to. Or game on watch how they have the audacity to blame for such for such a serious thing. Yeah, well, that them them accusations came straight from the South Yorkshire Police Federation representative, like the trade union representative of, of the South Yorkshire Police Federation, Paul Midder. And what he's doing is he's protecting his members. He's protecting those that he knows are responsible. Um, and the way he does that is by throwing accusations. Um, uh, those that are, are you know are victims of their actions, you know anything to avoid uh, uh, accepting responsibility for it. Yeah, no, they just can't, can they? Just, well, they just have to find people to blame. They don't, they don't get into the way they are. This is the way they are. They really don't give a monkey's. These people in charge of the country, the politicians in charge of the country, are doing exactly the same with the people killed by COVID. They send people out of hospitals and into care homes with COVID. They'll never accept the responsibility for them. They certainly won't face criminal charges over it. Because that's the way they are. They get to these positions of authority and power, and um, and and then you know they literally can't be touched. You know. Yeah, it's it's sad, really. People yeah, can't yeah. Get their own it's yeah, it's graceful. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely pathetic. Yeah. But um, obviously, just getting said that. What are you all on to is that you know now the way that they carry on, you know, and we know now um, the way that they carry on in the first place. We know all the tricks that they were up to, and we have the proof of all that tricks and, and um, stunts that they pulled, and, that. and you have to hold on to that. And as I say about the, um, the COVID uh, situation, you, you know, you, it's easy to translate it. Um, into that or Grenfell or you know the Bangladeshi fire that this is the way that these people will carry on because they really don't care about um, what it's about is themselves and their their power and their reputation abilities you know and they really don't care about those that are suffering from the, the way that they act and conduct themselves um, and it gives you a clear idea about the world that we live in yeah, information so accessible. It, it's so quick. Like, you can just blame someone. And that, that'll be out in a couple of minutes. Yeah, well, in them days, there was no internet in them days, and you know, or you know, or they say, um, you know, um, you know, because the first people they go to to ask what's going on is them with uh, power and responsibility, and that was Duckenfield and and Kelly. 
and took him through the man who was responsible, told the barefaced lie that, you know, the gates had been kicked in, knowing full well that the gates hadn't been kicked in. Now, whether he said that because he, you know, his mind was muddled or what have you from uh, drinking, we, we don't know because we don't know where he was in the hours before then. Um, and when it comes to questioning the inquest and the, uh, his trial earlier on this year, then uh, he said he can't remember. Well, he's got to be the only person on this earth who can't remember where he was on the 15th of April 1989. Because you ask anybody else who's of you know adult age, and they'll tell you where they were on that day. Um, you know, I remember being at college in 1998, and people telling me exactly what they'd done that day in the supermarket. People not related or, or connected in any way. People from Wigan and, and Manchester and that, and they tell you that you know down to, you know, what it was that they bought in the supermarket because, you know, they just remember um, being shocked by the news. And, of course, when they think back, they, they remember everything around them. But Tuchenfield says that he can't remember where he was in them, them hours before. You know, well, he went on the, the media straight away and said, we kicked the, the gates down, knowing full well that we hadn't, and told Graham Kelly the same thing. And between them, then they went to the media and, and said, you know, this is what's going on. Do you think they've kicked the gates down? We you know, they actually said we'd kick the gates down. Um, and then, you know, the media run that story all around the world. They kicked the gates down, you know. Um, and, and it just wasn't so, was it? But it took us 20-odd years to prove that it wasn't so. Yeah, and Liverpool fans are still pleading, still pleading and, like, having to go back at the government rightly. But what they what they know is right. Yeah, yeah, and that's what you hold on to. We've we've never changed what we what we said about uh, you know, especially as a group, uh, about what had gone on the way that it was there. You know, that's never ever changed, and and that's always been as it was. Um, you know, and and that's what you hold on to. That you know, we we've always known the way it was. You know, and um, we always known the way it is. We've had a lot of uh, suspicions, and you know, um, you know, what you say, uh, queries and, and doubts about the way that it's being portrayed and stuff like that. But um, you know, and a lot of that has come to be uh, shown to be so. You know. Yeah, it's, it's horrible, really. So yeah. he's sort of yeah. going to get sorted out. So it needs to. Yeah. So um, I'm going to move away from that tragic hills because it's probably it's just it's just horrible to talk about it. I'm going to move it onto your involvement with the um, famous Liverpool um, fan group Spirit of Shankly. So um, how did you first get involved, and how long have you been involved with them? Well, first got involved when they got started up. When the, the actual first meeting, I was in uh, I was in Scotland at the time. I was at um, a lodge on Loch Lomond when they had the, the first meeting. But as soon as I knew, you know, I knew it was going going to be happening. Um, and we got a, you know, myself and and the friends who, who we go to match with. Um, you know, we got ourselves involved straight away because we knew that the club was being ripped off. You know, um, these people were were buying the club with money they didn't have and then using the club to pay back the money that they didn't have, the money they borrowed. Um yeah, so we got we got involved right from the start, yeah, and then on, you know, all the marches and some meetings and stuff like that. And then uh, yeah, so yeah, we, we we were all involved right from the word go and determined to chase these people out of the uh, out of the club, yeah. 
Yeah, so it, he tells you a bit about the work that you do here now and how hard old you have to be to become a member because if when I get old enough, I'd like to start getting involved with it. Yeah, I, th- I think you, I, I think that you have to be over 16 to be a member of Spirit of Shankly. I'm still a member now and I still, um, you know, keep close um, contact with Spirit of Shankly members. At one time, I was uh, the community a member on the committee, but when I started doing my bus tour, um, I gave that position up because I felt there was a conflict of interest there, um, and that I was running a business that was, you know, targeting uh, football supporters, and um, and I was on a committee representing um, football supporters, so I thought there was a, a conflict of interest there, so. Um, I packed that in, but I've kept the contacts up, you know, and Spirit of Shankly have represented me in, you know, in different things, you know, to do with the, the club and, and what have you. Um, yeah, so, um, but, you know, I think that it's a, a significant step that they've now come to make an agreement with the club about the representation as the, um, the body representing supporters. I think that's a massive... Um, step forward, you know, the the, the um, facility there is to, you know, is to discuss with the club um, how things impact on, on the supporters and, that, and, and avenues whereby supporters can bring things to the attention uh, of the club, you know. So I, I think it's a massive move that, that they've made and it's going to be dead interesting to see how that develops in the next couple of years. Yeah, because when, when I'm old enough, I'd love to get involved because I'm a passionate Liverpool fan and I believe believe if I, if I got involved, hopefully, hopefully if I could, it went in the near future, I could try and, yeah. try and help yeah. out in any way possible. Yeah, well, uh, the, you know, that's another thing that really needs looking at. You know, the, 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 the one of the snags for young people is that, you know, you have to be with an adult to go in the ground and stuff like that, you know, that you're taken as being, you know, uh, incapable of, you know, looking after yourself until you're, you know, 16 or 18. So maybe there's questions there about how, you know, kids can be um, represented uh, in their own right, you know, for for the way that the world is for them and the way that they they see it, you know, especially, you know, when they go on the match and things like that. Yeah, boss. Um, I'm going to end the podcast here, so I'm going to say a massive, massive thank you for agreeing to come on, Peter. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, no, thanks for asking, Joe. Good luck with it, lads. Thank you very much. Cheer up. Cheer up. Okay.